0: BOOK ONE, CHAPTER SIX AND SEVEN OF THE FATAL THREE BY MARY ELIZABETH Braddon. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. CHAPTER SIX Ah, pity! THE LILY IS WITHERED. George Greswold left the dairy garden like a man stricken to death. He felt as if the hand of fate were on him. It was not his fault that this evil had come upon him, that these poor people whom he had tried to help suffered by his bounty and were perhaps to die for it. He had done all that human foresight could do, but the blind folly of his servants had stultified his efforts. Nothing in a London slum could have been worse than this evil which had come about in a gentleman's ornamental dairy, upon premises where money had been lavished to secure the perfection of scientific sanitation. Mr. Porter murmured some hopeful remark as they went back to the house. "'Don't talk about it, Porter,' Greswold answered impatiently. "'Nothing could be worse. Nothing.' Do all you can for these poor people, your uttermost, mind, your uttermost. Spare neither time nor money. Save them if you can. You may be assured I shall do my best. There are only three or four very bad cases. Three or four? My God, how horrible! Three or four people murdered by the idiocy of my servants. Joe Stanning, not much chance for him, I'm afraid. And Polly Rainbow. Polly. "'Poor little Polly. "'Oh, Porter, you must save her. "'You must perform a miracle, man. "'That is what genius means in a doctor. "'The man of genius does something "'that all other doctors have pronounced impossible. "'You will have Hutchinson over tomorrow. "'He may be able to help you. "'If she live till tomorrow, "'I'm afraid it's a question of a few hours.' "'George Greswold groaned aloud. "'And my daughter has been drinking the same tainted milk.' "'Will she be stricken, do you think?' he asked with an awful calmness. "'God forbid! Lola has such a fine constitution, and the antecedent circumstances are different. I'll go and have a look at my patients and come back to you late in the evening with the latest news.' They parted by a little gate at the corner of a thick yew hedge which admitted Mr. Greswold into his wife's flower-garden. The very old garden, which had been the care and delight of many generations.' a large square garden with broad flower-beds on each side, a stone sundial in the center of a grass plot, and a buttressed wall at the end, a massive old wall of vermilion brickwork, honeycombed by the decay of centuries against which a double rank of hollyhocks made a parti-coloured screen, while flaunting dragon's mouth and yellow stone crop made a flame of color on the top. There was an old stone summer-house in each angle of that end wall, Temples open to the sun and air, and raised upon three marble steps stained with moss and lichen. Charming as these antique retreats were to muse or read in, Mildred Greswold preferred taking tea on the lawn in the shadow of the two old cedars. She was sitting in a low garden chair with a Japanese tea-table at her side and a volume of Robertson's sermons on her lap. It was a rule of life at Enderby Manor that only books of pious tendency should be read on Sundays. The Sunday library was varied and well chosen. Nobody ever found the books dull or the day too long. The dedication of that one day in seven to godliness and good works had never been an oppression to Mildred Greswold. She remembered her mother's Sundays-days of hasty church and slow, elaborate dressing for afternoon or evening gaieties, days of church parade and much praise of other people's gowns and appreciation of other people's conduct. Days of gadding about and running from place to place. Sunday luncheons, Sunday musical parties, Sunday expeditions up the river, Sunday in the studios, Sunday at Richmond or Greenwich. Mrs. Greswold remembered the fussy emptiness of that fashionable Sunday and preferred sermons and tranquil solitude in the manor gardens. Solitude meant a trinity of domestic love. Husband, wife, and daughter spent their Sundays together. Those were blessed days for the wife and daughter, since there were no business engagements, no quarter sessions or interviews with the bailiff, or letter-writing to rob them of the society they both loved best in the world. George Greswold devoted his Sundays entirely to his creator and his home. Where is Lola? he asked, surprised to find his wife alone at this hour. She has a slight headache, and I persuaded her to lie down for an hour or so. The father's face blanched. A word was enough in his overwrought condition. Porter must see her, he said, and I have just let him leave me. I'll send someone after him. My dear George, it is nothing, only one of her usual headaches. You are sure she was not feverish? I think not. It never occurred to me. She has often complained of headaches since she began to grow so fast. Yes, she has shot up like a tall white lily. My lily, murmured the father tenderly. He sank into a chair, feeling helpless, hopeless almost, under that overpowering sense of fatality, of undeserved evil. "'Dear George, you look so ill this afternoon,' said his wife, with a tender anxiety, laying her hand on his shoulder and looking earnestly at him as he sat there in the downcast attitude, his arms hanging loosely, his eyes bent upon the ground. "'I'm afraid the heat has overcome you.' "'Yes, it has been very hot. Do me a favor, Mildred.' "'Go into the house and send somebody to find Porter. "'He was going the round of the cottages where there are sick people. "'He can easily be found. "'I want him to see Lola at once.' "'I'll send after him, George, but indeed I don't see any need for a doctor. "'Lola is so strong. "'Her headaches pass like summer clouds.' "'Oh, George, you don't think that she is going to have fever like the cottagers?' cried Mildred, full of sudden terror. "'No, no, of course not.' why should she have the fever? But Porter might as well see her at once, at once. I hate delay in such cases. His wife hurried away without a word. He had imbued her with all his own fears. He sat in the garden, just as she had left him, motionless, benumbed with sorrow. There might indeed be no ground for this chilling fear. Others might die, and his beloved might still go unscathed. But she had been subjected to the same poison, and at any moment the same symptoms might show themselves. For the next week or ten days he must be haunted by a hideous spectre. He would make haste to get his dearest one away to the strong, fresh mountain air, to the salt breath of the German ocean. But if the poison had already tainted that young life, mountain and sea could not save her from the fever. She must pass through the furnace as those others were passing. Poor little Polly Rainbow! THE ONLY CHILD OF A WIDOW, THE ONLY ONE. LIKE MINE, HE SAID TO HIMSELF. HE SAT IN THE GARDEN TILL DUSK, brooding, PRAYING DUMBLY, UNUTTERABLY SAD. THE IMAGE OF THE WIDOW OF Nantes WAS IN HIS MIND WHILE HE SAT THERE. THE HUMBLE FUNERAL TRAIN, THE MOURNING MOTHER, AND THAT DIVINE FACE SHINING OUT OF THE LITTLE GROUP OF PEASANT FACES, RADIANT WITH INTELLECT AND FAITH. AMONG THEM, BUT NOT OF THEM, and the uplifted hand beckoning the dead man from the bier. "'The age of miracles is past,' he thought. "'There is no saviour in the land to help me. "'In my day of darkness heaven made no sign. "'I was left to suffer as the worms suffer under the ploughshare "'and to wriggle back to life as best I could, like them. "'It was growing towards the summer darkness when he rose and went into the house "'where he questioned the butler whom he met in the hall.' Mr. Porter had been brought back and had seen Miss Greswold. He had found her slightly feverish and had ordered her to go to bed. Mrs. Greswold was sitting with her. Did Dr. Porter seem anxious? No, not at all anxious. But he was going to send Miss Lola some medicine before bedtime. It was after nine now, but Greswold could not stay in the house. He wanted to know how it fared with this sick tenantry, most of all with the little flaxen-haired girl he had so often noticed of late. He went out into the road that led to the village, a scattered colony, a cottage here and there, or a cluster of cottages and gardens on a bit of rising ground above the road. There was a common little way from the manor, a picturesque, irregular expanse of hollows and hillocks, skirted by a few cottages, and with a fir plantation shielding it from the north. Mrs. Rainbow's cottage stood between the common and the firwood on an old half-timbered cottage, very low, with a bedroom in the roof and a curious dormer window, "'with a thatched arch projecting above the lattice "'like an overhanging eyebrow. "'The little garden was aflame "'with scarlet bean-blossom, roses, and geraniums, "'and the perfume of sweet peas filled the air. "'Greswold heard the doctor talking in the upper chamber "'as he stood by the gate. "'The deep grave tones were audible in the evening stillness, "'and there was another sound that chilled the squire's heart, "'the sound of a woman's suppressed weeping. "'He waited at the gate.' He had not the nerve to go into the cottage and face that sorrowing window. It seemed to him as if the child's peril were his fault. It was not enough that he had taken all reasonable precautions. He ought to have foreseen the idiocy of his servants. He ought to have been more on the alert to prevent evil. The great round moon came slowly up out of a cluster of scotch firs. How black the branches looked against that red light! Slowly, slowly, gliding upward in a slanting line, the moon stole at the back of those black branches and climbed into the open sky. How often Lola had watched such a moonrise at his side, and with what keen eyes she had noted the beauty of the spectacle! It was not that he had trained her to observe and to feel the loveliness of nature. With her that feeling had been an instinct, born with her, going before the wisdom of maturity, the cultivated taste of travelled experience. Tonight she was lying in her darkened room, the poor head heavy and painful on the pillow. She would not see the moon rising slowly yonder in that cloudless sky. No matter, she will see it tomorrow, I hope, he said to himself, trying to be cheerful. I am a morbid fool to torment myself. She has been subject to headaches of late. Mildred is right. And then he remembered that death and sorrow were near, close to him as he stood there watching the moon. He remembered poor little Polly Rainbow and desponded again. A woman's agonized cry broke the soft summer stillness and pierced George Greswold's heart. The child is dead, he thought. Yes, poor little Polly was gone. The widow came out to the gate presently, sobbing piteously, and clasped Mr. Greswold's hand and cried over it, broken down by her despair, leaning against the gate-post as if her limbs had lost the power to bear her up. "'Oh, sir, she was my all,' she sobbed. "'She was my all.' She could say no more than this, but kept repeating it again and again. "'She was all I had in the world, the only thing I cared for.' George Greswold touched her shoulder with protecting gentleness. There was not a peasant in the village for whom he had not infinite tenderness, pitying their infirmities, forgiving their errors, inexhaustible in benevolence towards them all. He had set himself to make his dependents happy as the first duty of his position. And yet he had done them evil unwittingly. He had cost this poor widow her dearest treasure-her one ewe lamb. Bear up if you can, my good soul, he said, I know that it is hard. Oh, sir, you'd know it better if it was your young lady that was stricken down! exclaimed the widow bitterly, and the squire walked away from the cottage gate without another word. Yes, he would know it better, then. His heart was heavy enough now. What would it be like if she were smitten? She was much the same next day, languid, with an aching head and some fever. She was not very feverish. On the whole, the doctor was hopeful, or he pretended to be so. He could give no positive opinion yet, nor could Dr. Hutchinson. They were both agreed upon that point. AND THEY WERE AGREED THAT THE POLLUTED WATER IN THE GARDEN WELL HAD BEEN THE CAUSE OF THE VILLAGE EPIDEMIC. ANALYSIS HAD SHOWN THAT IT WAS CHARGED WITH POISONOUS GAS. MR. Greswold HASTENED HIS PREPARATIONS FOR THE JOURNEY TO SCOTLAND WITH A FEVERISH EAGERNESS. HE WROTE TO ENGAGE A SLEEPING CARRIAGE ON THE GREAT NORTHERN. THEY WERE TO TRAVEL ON THURSDAY, LEAVING HOME BEFORE NOON, DINING IN TOWN, AND STARTING FOR THE NORTH IN THE EVENING. If Lola's illness were indeed the slight indisposition which everybody hoped it was, she might be quite able to travel on Thursday, and the change of air and movement would do her good. She is always so well in Scotland, said her father. No, there did not seem much amiss with her. She was very sweet and even cheerful when her father went into her room to sit beside her bed for a quarter of an hour or so. The doctors had ordered that she should be kept very quiet, and a hospital nurse had been fetched from Salisbury to sit up at night with her. There was no necessity for such care, but it was well to do even a little too much where so cherished a life was at stake. People had but to look at the father's face to know how precious that frail existence was to him. Nor was it less dear to the mother, but she seemed less apprehensive, less bowed down by the gloomy forebodings. Yes, Lola was quite cheerful for those few minutes in which her father sat by her side. The strength of her love overcame her weakness. She forgot the pain in her head the weariness of her limbs while he was there. She questioned him about the villagers. ''How is little Polly going on?'' she asked. He dared not tell the truth. It would have hurt him too much to speak to her of death. ''She is going on very well. All is well, love,'' he said, deceiving her for the first time in his life. This was on Tuesday, and the preparations for Scotland were still in progress. Mr. Greswold's talk with his daughter was all of their romantic highland home, of the picnics and rambles, the fishing excursions and sketching parties they would have there. The nurse sat in a corner and listened to them with a grave countenance, and would not allow Mr. Greswold more than ten minutes with his daughter. He counted the hours till they should be on the road for the North. There would be the rest of Tuesday and all Wednesday. She would be up and dressed on Wednesday, no doubt." AND ON THURSDAY MORNING THE GOOD OLD GRAY CARRIAGE HORSES WOULD TAKE THEM ALL OFF TO RAMSEY STATION. SUCH A PRETTY DRIVE ON A SUMMER MORNING BY FIELDS AND COPSES, WITH CHANGEFUL GLIMPSES OF THE SILVERY TEST. DR. Hutchinson CAME ON TUESDAY EVENING AND FOUND HIS PATIENT NOT QUITE SO WELL. THERE WAS A LONG CONFERENCE BETWEEN THE TWO DOCTORS, AND THEN THE NURSE WAS CALLED IN TO RECEIVE HER INSTRUCTIONS. AND THEN MR. Greswold WAS TOLD THAT THE JOURNEY TO SCOTLAND MUST BE PUT OFF FOR A FORTNIGHT AT THE VERY LEAST. He received the sentence as if it had been his death warrant. He asked no questions. He dared not. A second nurse was to be sent over from Southampton next morning. The two doctors had the cool, determined air of men who are preparing for a battle. Lola was light-headed next morning, but with intervals of calmness and consciousness. She heard the church bell tolling and asked what it meant. "'It's for Polly Rainbow's funeral,' answered the maid who was tidying the room. "'Oh, no!' cried Lola. "'That can't be. Father said she was better.' And then her mind began to wander, and she talked of Polly Rainbow as if the child had been in the room, talked of the little girl's lessons at the parish school and of a prize that she was to get. After that all was darkness, all was despair, a seemingly inevitable progress from bad to worse. Science, care, love, prayers, all were futile. "'and the bell that had tolled for the widow's only child "'tolled ten days afterwards for Lola. "'It seemed to George Greswold as though slow strokes "'beat upon his brain heavily, heavily, like minute guns, "'that all the hopes and cares and joys and expectations "'life had held for him were over. "'His wife was on her knees in the darkened house "'from which the funeral train was slowly moving, "'and he had loved her passionately.' and yet it seemed to him as if the open car yonder, with its coffin hidden under snow-white blossoms, was carrying away all that had ever been precious to him upon this earth. She was the morning with its promise of day, he said to himself. She was the springtime with its promise of summer. While I had her, I lived in the future. Henceforward I can only live in the present. I dare not look back upon the past. CHAPTER Seven. DRIFTING APART. George Greswold and his wife spent the rest of that fatal year in a villa on the lake of Toon, an Italian villa, with a campanello tower, and a long white colonnade and stone balconies overhanging lawn and gardens where the flowers grew in a riotous profusion. The villa was midway between two of the boat stations, and there was no other house near, and this loneliness was its chief charm for those two heartbroken mourners. They yearned for no sympathy, they cared for no companionship hardly even for that of each other, close as the bond of love had been till now. Each seemed to desire, above all things, to be alone with that great grief, to hug that dear, sad memory in silence and solitude. Only to see them from a distance, from the boat yonder, as it glided swiftly past that flowery lawn, an observer would have guessed at sorrow and bereavement from the mere attitude of either mourner, the man sitting with his head bent forward, brooding on the ground, the unread newspaper lying across his knee, the woman on the other side of the lawn, beyond speaking distance, half reclining in a low basket chair with her hands clasped above her head, gazing at the distant line of snow mountains in listless vacancy. The huge, tan-colored St. Bernard, snapping with his great cavern-like jaws at the infinitesimal flies, was the only object that gave life to the picture. The boats went by in sunshine and cloud, the boats went by under torrential rain, which seemed to fuse lake and mountains, villas and gardens into one watery chaos. The boats went by, and the days passed like the boats, and made no difference in the lives of those two mourners. Nothing could ever make any difference to either of them forevermore, it seemed to Mildred. It was as if some spring had broken in the machinery of life. Even love seemed dead. And yet he was once so fond of me and I of him, thought the wife. "'watching her husband's face with its curious look of absence, "'the look of a window with the blind down. "'There were times when that look of utter abstraction "'almost frightened Mildred Greswold. "'It was an expression she had seen occasionally "'during her daughter's lifetime, "'and which had always made her anxious. "'It was the look about which Lola used to say "'when they all met at the breakfast-table. "'Papa has had his bad dream again.' "'That bad dream was no invention of Lola's, but a stern reality in George Greswold's life. He would start up from his pillow in an agony, muttering broken sentences in that voice of the sleeper which seems always different from his natural voice, as if he belonged to another world. Cold beads of sweat would start out upon his forehead, and the wife would put her arms round him and soothe him as a mother soothes her frightened child, until the muttering ceased and he sank upon his pillow exhausted to lapse into quiet sleep, or else awoke and recovered calmness in awakening. THE DREAM, WHATEVER IT WAS, ALWAYS LEFT ITS MARK UPON HIM NEXT DAY. IT WAS A KIND OF NIGHTMARE, HE TOLD HIS WIFE, WHEN SHE GENTLY QUESTIONED HIM, NOT URGING HER QUESTIONS lest THERE SHOULD BE PAIN IN THE MERE RECOLLECTION OF THAT HORRID VISION. HE COULD GIVE NO GRAPHIC DESCRIPTION OF THAT DREAM. IT WAS ALL CONFUSION, A BLURRED AND TROUBLED PICTURE. BUT THAT CONFUSION WAS IN ITSELF AGONY. RARELY WERE HIS MUTTERINGS INTELLIGIBLE. Rarely did his wife catch half a dozen consecutive words from those broken sentences, but once she heard him say, THE CAGE, THE CAGE AGAIN, IRON BARS LIKE A WILD BEAST. And now that absent and cloudy look which she had seen in her husband's face after the bad dream was there often. She spoke to him sometimes, and he did not hear. She repeated the same question twice or thrice in her soft, low voice, standing close beside him, and he did not answer. There were times when it was difficult to arouse him from that deep abstraction, and at such times the utter blankness and solitude of her own life weighed upon her like a dead weight, an almost unbearable burden. What is to become of us both in all the long years before us? she thought despairingly. Are we to be always far apart, living in the same house, spending all our days together and yet divided? She had married before she was eighteen, and at one and thirty— was still in the bloom of womanhood, younger than most women of that age, for her life had been subject to none of those vicissitudes and fevers which age women of the world. She had never kept a secret from her husband, never trembled at opening a milliner's account, or blushed at the delivery of a surreptitious letter. The struggles for pre-eminence, the social race in which some women waste their energies and strain their nerves, were unknown to her. She had lived at Enderby Manor as the flowers lived, rejoicing in the air and the sunshine, drinking out of a cup of life in which there mingled no drop of poison. Thus it was that not one line upon the transparent skin marked the passage of a decade. The violet eyes had the limpid purity, and the emotional lips had the tender carnation of girlhood. Mildred Greswold was as beautiful at thirty-one as Mildred Fawcett had been at seventeen. And yet it seemed to her that life was over, and that her husband had ceased to care for her. Many and many an hour in that lovely solitude beside the lake she sat with hands loosely clasped in her lap or above her head, with her books lying forgotten at her feet, all the newest books that librarians could send to tempt the jaded appetite of the reader, and her eyes gazing vacantly over the blue of the lake or towards the snow peaks on the horizon. Often in these silent musings she recalled the past, and looked at the days that were gone as at a picture. She remembered just such an autumn as this. A peerless autumn spent with her father at the Hook, spent, for the most part, on the river and in the garden, the sunny days and moonlit nights being far too lovely for anyone to waste indoors. Her seventeenth birthday was not long past. It was just ten years since she had come home to that house to find Fay had vanished from it, and to shed bitter tears for the loss of her companion. Never since that time had she seen Fay's face. Her questions had been met coldly and angrily by her mother— and even her father had answered her with unsatisfactory brevity. All she could learn was that Fay had been sent to complete her education at a finishing school at Brussels. "'At school? Oh, poor Fay, I hope she is happy.' "'She ought to be,' Mrs. Fawcett answered peevishly. "'This school is horridly expensive. I saw one of the bills the other day. Simply enormous. The girls are taken to the opera, and have all sorts of absurd indulgences.' "'Still, it is only school, mother, not home,' said Mildred compassionately. This was two years after Fay had vanished. No letter had ever come from her to Mildred, though Mildred was able to write now in her own sprawling childish fashion, and would have been delighted to answer any such letter. She had herself indicted various epistles to her friend, but had not succeeded in getting them posted. They had drifted to the waste-paper basket, mute evidences of wasted affection.' AS EACH HOLIDAY TIME CAME ROUND, THE CHILD ASKED IF THEY WERE COMING HOME, ALWAYS TO RECEIVE THE SAME SADDENING NEGATIVE. ONE DAY, WHEN SHE HAD BEEN MORE URGENT THAN USUAL, MRS. Fossett LOST TEMPER AND ANSWERED SHARPLY, NO, SHE IS NOT COMING. SHE IS NEVER COMING. I DON'T LIKE HER, AND I DON'T INTEND EVER TO HAVE HER IN ANY HOUSE OF MINE, SO YOU MAY AS WELL LEAVE OFF plaguing ME ABOUT HER. BUT, MOTHER, WHY DON'T YOU LIKE HER? NEVER MIND WHY, I DON'T LIKE HER. THAT IS ENOUGH FOR YOU TO KNOW. "'But, mother, if she is father's daughter and my sister, "'you ought to like her,' pleaded Mildred, very much in earnest. "'How dare you say that? "'You must never say it again. "'You are a naughty, cruel child to say such things,' "'exclaimed Mrs. Fawcett, beginning to cry. "'Why naughty, why cruel? "'Oh, mother!' and Mildred cried too. "'She clasped her arms round her mother's neck and sobbed aloud. "'Dear mother, indeed I am not naughty.' she protested. But Bell said Fay was Papa's daughter. Of course she's his daughter, Bell said, and if she's father's daughter, she's my sister, and it's wicked not to love one's sister. The psalm I was learning yesterday says so, Mother. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And it means sisters just the same, Miss Colville said, when I asked her, and I do love Fay. I can't help loving her. "'You must never speak her name again to me,' said Mrs. Fawcett resolutely. "'I shall leave off loving you if you pester me about that odious girl.' "'Then wasn't it true what Belle said?' "'Of course not.' "'Mother, would it be wrong for Papa to have a daughter?' asked Mildred, perplexed by this mysterious resentment for which she could understand no cause. "'Wrong? It would be infamous.' "'Would God be angry?' asked the child with an awe-stricken look. "'Would it be wicked?' "'It would be the worst possible insult to me,' said Lord Castle Connell's daughter, ignoring the minor question. After this Mildred refrained from all further speech about the absent girl to her mother, but as the years went by she questioned her father from time to time as to Faye's whereabouts. "'She is very well off, my dear. You need not make yourself unhappy about her. She is with a very nice family and has pleasant surroundings.' "'Shall I never see her again, father?' ''Never's a long day, Mildred. I'll take you to see her by and by when there is an opportunity. You see, it happens unfortunately that your mother does not like her, so it is better she should not come here. It would not be pleasant for her, or for me.'' He said this gravely with a somewhat dejected look, and Mildred felt somehow that even to him it would be better to talk no more of her lost companion. As the years went by, Mrs. Fawcett changed from a woman of fashion to a nervous valetudinarian. It was not that she loved pleasure less, but her beauty and her health had both begun to dwindle and fade at an age when other women are in their prime. She fretted at the loss of her beauty, watched every wrinkle, counted every grey hair, lamented over every change in the delicate colouring which had been her chief charm. "'How pretty you are growing, Mildred!' she exclaimed once with a discontented air when Mildred was a tall slip of fourteen. "'You are just what I was at your age.' and you will grow prettier every day until you are thirty, and then, I dare say, you will begin to fade as I have done, and feel an old woman as I do. It seemed to her that her own charms dwindled as her daughter grew. As the bud unfolded, the flower faded. She felt almost as if Mildred had robbed her of her beauty. She would not give up the pleasures and excitement of society. She consulted half a dozen fashionable physicians, and would not obey one of them. They all prescribed the same repulsive treatment. REST, EARLY HOURS, COUNTRY AIR, WITH GENTLE EXERCISE. NO PARTIES, NO EXCITEMENT, NO STRONG TEA. MRS. Fawcett DISOBEYED THEM ALL, AND FROM ONLY fancying HERSELF ILL GREW TO BE REALLY ILL, AND FROM CHRONIC LASSITUDE DEVELOPED ORGANIC DISEASE OF THE HEART. SHE LINGERED NEARLY TWO YEARS, A CONFIRMED INVALID SUFFERING A GOOD DEAL AND GIVING OTHER PEOPLE A GREAT DEAL OF TROUBLE. She died soon after Mildred's sixteenth birthday, and, on her deathbed she confided freely in her daughter, who had attended upon her devotedly all through her illness, neglecting everything else in the world for her mother's sake. "'You are old enough to understand things that must once have seemed very mysterious to you, Mildred,' said Mrs. Fawcett, lying half-hidden in the shadow of Guipur bed-curtains with her daughter's hand clasped in hers, perhaps forgetting how young that daughter was in her own yearning for sympathy.' YOU COULDN'T MAKE OUT WHY I DISLIKED THAT HORRID GIRL SO MUCH, COULD YOU? NO, INDEED, MOTHER. I HATED HER BECAUSE SHE WAS YOUR FATHER'S DAUGHTER, MILDRED. HIS NATURAL DAUGHTER. THE CHILD OF SOME WOMAN WHO WAS NOT HIS WIFE. YOU ARE OLD ENOUGH NOW TO KNOW WHAT THAT MEANS. YOU WERE READING THE HEART OF MIDLOTHIAN TO ME LAST WEEK. YOU KNOW, MILDRED? YES, MILDRED KNEW. SHE HUNG HER HEAD AT THE MEMORY OF THAT SAD STORY. "'and at the thought that her father might have sinned "'like George Staunton. "'Yes, Mildred, she was the child of some woman "'he loved before he married me. "'He must have been desperately in love with the woman, "'or he would never have brought her daughter into my house. "'It was the greatest insult he could offer to me. "'Was it, mother?' "'Was it? "'Why, of course it was. "'How stupid you are, child!' "'exclaimed the invalid peevishly, "'and the feverish hand grew hotter as she talked.' Mildred blushed crimson at the thought of this story of shame. Poor Fay, Poor unhappy Fay, And yet her strong common sense told her that there were two sides to the question. "'It was not Fay's fault, mother,' she said gently. "'No one could blame Fay or be angry with her. And if the wicked woman was dead, and father had repented, and was sorry, was it very wrong for him to bring my sister home to us?' "'Don't call her your sister!' "'exclaimed Mrs. Fawcett with a feeble scream of angry alarm. "'She is not your sister. "'She is no relation. "'She is nothing to you. "'It was an insult to bring her across my threshold. "'You must be very stupid or you must care very little for me "'if you can't understand that. "'His conduct proved that he had cared for that low common woman, "'Fay's mother, more than he ever cared for me. "'Perhaps he thought her prettier than me,' "'said the invalid in hysterical parenthesis. "'and I have never known a happy hour since. "'Oh, mamma dear, not in all the years "'when you used to wear such lovely gowns "'and go to so many parties,' "'protested the voice of common sense. "'I only craved for excitement "'because I was miserable at heart. "'I don't think you can half understand "'a wife's feelings, Mildred, "'or you wouldn't say such foolish things. "'I wanted you to know this before my death. "'I want you to remember it always, "'and if you meet that odious girl— "'Avoid her as you would a pestilence. "'If your father should attempt to bring her here "'or to Parchment Street, after I am gone. "'He will not, mother. "'He will respect your wishes too much. "'He will be too sorry,' exclaimed Mildred, "'bending down to kiss the hot, dry hand "'and moistening it with her tears. "'The year of mourning that began soon after this conversation "'was a very quiet interval for father and daughter. "'They travelled a little, spent six months in Leipzig, where Mildred studied the piano under the most approved masters, a couple of months in Paris, where her father showed her all the lions in a tranquil, leisurely way that was very pleasant. And then they went down to the hook and lived there in happy idleness on the river and in the gardens all through a long and lovely summer. Both were saddened at the sight of an empty chair, one sacred corner in all the prettiest rooms, where Maud Fawcett had been wont to sit, a graceful languid figure robed in white, or some pale, delicate hue even more beautiful than white in contrast with the background of palms and flowers, Japanese screen, or Indian curtain. How pretty she had looked sitting there with books and scent-bottles and dainty satin-lined basket full of some light, frivolous work, which progressed by stages of half a dozen stitches a day! Her fans, her Tennyson, her palms, and perfumes, all had savoured of her own fragile, bright-coloured loveliness. She was gone— And father and daughter were alone together, deeply attached to each other, yet with a secret between them, a secret which made a darkening shadow across the lives of both. Whenever John Fawcett wore a look of troubled thought, Mildred fancied he was brooding upon the past, thinking of that erring woman who had borne him a child, the child he had tried to fuse into his own family, and to whom her own childish heart had yearned as to a sister. "'It must have been instinct that made me love her,' she said to herself and then she would wonder idly what the fair sinner who had been Fay's mother was like, and whether her father had really cared more for that frail woman than for his lawful wife. "'Poor pretty mamma, He seemed to dote upon her,' thought Mildred. "'I cannot imagine his ever having loved anyone so well. I cannot imagine his ever having cared for any other woman in this world.' The formless image of that unknown woman haunted the girl's imagination, She appeared sometimes with one aspect, sometimes another, darkly beautiful of oriental type, like Scott's Rebecca, or fair and lowly-born like Effie Dean's, poor, fragile Effie, fated to fall at the first temptation. Poetry and fiction were full of suggestions about that unknown influence in her father's life. But every thought of the past ended in a sigh of pity for that fair wife whose domestic happiness had been clouded over by that half-discovered mystery. Never a word did she breathe to her father upon this forbidden subject, never a word to Bell, who was still at the head of affairs in both Mr. Fawcett's houses, and who looked like a grim and stony repository of family secrets. End of chapter 6 and 7